All right, well, we are doing the attributes of God. Today we're going to cover, we're going to put these as three separate attributes. Um, you'll find out that's actually not exactly true. Not all these are separate attributes, but we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about righteousness, wrath, and jealousy. So it should be a very uplifting class. <laughs> Let's start with righteousness. Uh, Wayne Gruden provides great definitions, so we'll, we'll use his definition. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. To be righteous means that what you do is always right. It always conforms to a moral standard. And God is always righteous. Everything he does is perfectly good, morally good. This is not talking about God's goodness. This is talking about his morality. Everything that God does is right. It conforms perfectly to his perfect standard. And he is the standard. He is the final standard of what is right. If you want to know if something is right, morally right, you compare it to God and what God says, and you'll know if it's right or not. God's righteousness is closely associated with his holiness. So you're going to hear some overlap between righteousness and holiness. But they are technically distinct from one another. His holiness and his righteousness are not the same thing. Holiness talks about him being set apart and separate not only from his creation but from sin itself. Righteousness refers to his, his adherence to a moral standard. And then when we talk about righteousness, there's another term we can use to describe the same thing. It's called justice. Justice and righteousness are the same attribute. They're just two sides of the same coin. So we're going to talk about righteousness today, and we're also going to talk about justice. Just understand we're talking about the same attribute. We haven't changed subjects. It's the same thing. It's just a different aspect of it. Now, when you go... I've been doing word studies with you guys. When we go through the Old Testament and we look at the words that are used to describe the righteousness of God, it's not just one word. It's actually like four or five different words, but they all come from the same root. So instead of giving you all four or five words and trying to help you memorize all those words and keep all track of all of them, I'm just going to show you one of them, and then I'm going to give you the meanings for all the rest of them. Okay? And you'll, you'll see how they all relate. That's one word. That's actually the verb, zadak. There's a noun, zadek, right? They all sound very similar. Uh, there's another noun, zadakim. What are the meanings of these words, this word group together? Well, one meaning is one who is right in a debate. You might say the winner of the debate. The one who has the correct argument. The one who makes the right case. Closely related to that is this... These words can be used to describe the correctness or the truth of an assertion. What he said was true. It conforms to the standard of what is true. These terms can also be used to describe one who is proved right before a trial judge and is acquitted. You get accused of a crime, you go before a judge, and the judge says you are innocent. You have been found innocent. The term can also be used to refer to one who is law-abiding. Remember we said righteousness is conformity to a standard. Here, righteousness describes a person who conforms to the standard of the law. So in a civil sense, you are righteous in this country if you obey the laws given by the country. 
But if you want to know if you're truly righteous, you have to conform to whose law? God's law. God's law becomes the ultimate standard of what is and is not righteous. Okay, so all of these are English definitions for these words. These are how this word group is used. When these words are translated into the New Testament, there's another word group that's used. Dikaiao, that's the verb. And again, we're just going to do the English definitions for this word group. This word group can refer to taking up a legal cause, to show or to do justice. You see these high-powered attorneys who take up legal causes for other people, and they do pro bono work. And they find someone that they believe has been victimized, and so they go to that person, they say, I'm going to take up your cause, and I'm going to make a legal case so that we can give you justice. That's the idea. It could also refer to rendering a favorable verdict to vindicate someone. Uh, James chapter 2, you are justified by works. So James 2 does say you're justified by works. And he uses this word group. But what he's talking about is not you're justified in the sense of you are made righteous through your works. You earn standing with God through your works. He's talking about your works vindicate, your works prove how genuine your faith is. It's just understanding that that word group has nuances to it, and the context determines which of these definitions you apply. It could also refer to someone being caused to be released from a personal or institutional claim that are no longer considered pertinent or valid. If I owed you a debt, I owed you $100, and you and I came to an agreement that I was going to pay you $100, that is a legal obligation that I have to you. And let's say we did it correctly, we did paperwork on it. I owe you 100 bucks, and you can go to court and prove I owe it to you. That is a legal obligation that I am required to pay. If I pay the debt, this term can be used to refer to the releasing of that obligation. The debt has been paid. I am no longer obligated to give you $100 anymore. Does that make sense? You have been released from that obligation. This term can also be used to, do, to demonstrate to be morally right or prove to be right. In the sense of, I have demonstrated that what I have done is morally acceptable, is morally good. So in this sense, you can say, I can go into the Word of God and I can prove my behavior is righteous because the Word of God says X, Y, and Z. And the final use of this is what you know. To be pronounced and treated as righteous. And again, this one has a very legal connotation to it, like all of these. It's very legal because in this idea, it's the picture of a judge sitting in a courtroom with a convicted criminal in front of him, and he declares the criminal to be righteous. And that declaration isn't just a meaningless declaration, because then that criminal is then treated as being righteous. He is set free. This is how Paul uses this to describe salvation, justified by faith. You are declared to be righteous on the basis of what Christ has done for you, not on the basis of who you are. All of these terms, Old Testament, New Testament terms, both of these word groups refer to the idea of conforming to a standard. 
Louis Burkhoff said the Hebrew terms for righteous and the corresponding Greek terms contain the idea of conformity to a standard. To be righteous, to be just, means you have a strict adherence to a standard of what is right. It means a person doesn't ever abandon that standard. They stick to the standard that has been set. There's no room here for expediency or pragmatism. Pragmatism would say, well, in this particular situation, it would be practical and pragmatic for me to lie to you because that will achieve the end that I want in this situation. That's pragmatism. That is what an unrighteous person does. That's deviating from the standard. Righteousness never deviates from the standard. It is always in adherence with what the law says. If we talk about this from the perspective of justice, a judge sitting on a bench who deviates from the law because the criminal wrote him a check, and he says, well, since you're going to pay me, the law says I should send you to prison, but since you paid me, I'm not going to send you to prison. I'm going to send you home. Is that a righteous judge? Is that a just judge? He's deviating from the standard. Okay, so what's the standard? We understand that we're under God's law. We're under God's law because God's greater than we are. He's the creator, we're the creation, and we have to be under his law. And for us to be considered righteous in and of ourselves, it means that we must perfectly conform to his standard, to his law. What's the problem there? Yeah, we can't, right? It's impossible. None of us can perfectly conform to God's law. Romans 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. Okay, so we're under God's law, but we can't be righteous. Here's the question. We're talking about God's attributes. To what law is God beholden to? God is held to his own standard? He is the standard. God is not beholden to a separate law, a law outside of himself, because there's nothing that is superior to him. We're beholden to God's law because God is superior to us, and he's greater than we are. But there is nothing greater than God. So there is no law that is above God. But some have said, well, since there's no law that is above God, there's no standard outside of God, therefore, God can't be considered righteous. He can't be righteous because there's no law outside of himself, so he can't be righteous. A couple problems there. First, Scripture says he is righteous, so we can pull that argument. But the second problem is what has already been said. When the Bible speaks of God being righteous and conforming to a standard, the standard is not external to himself. God is the greatest good that can possibly be conceived of. He is his own standard. His nature, his perfectly righteous, good nature, becomes the standard to which he is beholden. And he must act in accordance with his nature. You remember when we talked about omnipotence, we looked at the will, and we had a brief discussion on the will of God, and we said there was two kinds of God's will, his necessary will and his free will. Do you remember what necessary will was? That was a few weeks back. 
Necessary will are those decisions God is required to make as a result of his nature. His necessary will would be God cannot lie. Why? Because his nature doesn't allow him to. God is his own standard. And he is beholden only to his own nature. Uh, Louis Burkhoff. But though there is no law above God, there is certainly a law in the very nature of God. And this is the highest possible standard by which all other laws are judged. And as I said, the righteousness of God, righteousness is ascribed to God throughout the scriptures. You can start all the way back, I think the first time is in Exodus. And you go through all of scripture, and over and over again, God's righteous, God is described as being righteous. That all of his actions are good, morally right. A couple examples. Ezra 9, 15. Oh, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. And then he explains why he's saying that God is righteous. For we have been left an escaped remnant. As it is this day, behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. You are righteous, and your righteousness is demonstrated in the fact that you have not only judged the nation of Israel, but then you have left an escaped remnant. And that's righteous, that's good, because it conforms to what God had promised the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 12, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? This should be a good place to help your prayer life. He's praying the attributes of God. Notice he says, righteous are you, O Lord. He's affirming God is righteous. God always does what is good. God always does what is right. He is always just that I would plead my case with you. I'm coming before you for this reason. You are good, you are always just, you always do what is right. And on that basis, I'm coming to you, I'm pleading my case with you, so that you would act in accordance with your own nature, that you would behave as you should behave. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease. He's not saying, look, I'm going to be a social justice warrior and I'm going to go out and fix all the problems of the world. He's saying, look, there's evil people over there and you are a just God. You always do what is right. You always do what is just. Those people are evil and wicked. Why aren't you doing something about it? And he's basing his prayer off the, the nature of God himself. Daniel 9, verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Daniel's where? Is Daniel in Jerusalem? Where is Daniel? He's in Babylon. He's in captivity. What's happened to Jerusalem? It's not having a good time, is it? They're under judgment. And he says, therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. And then he says, the Lord, our God, is righteous with respect to all of his deeds. What deed is he talking about? The calamity God just brought upon Jerusalem. 
even in God's judgment, Daniel recognizes God is righteous. God it always does what is morally right. It's always just. It always conforms to his perfect standard. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus also referred to God as being righteous. John 17, verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Jesus knows better than anybody the nature of God. God is righteous. 2 Timothy 4, 8, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I think this is one of the most gracious verses in the world. Paul, the guy who killed Christians for fun, who laid waste to the early church, says that a righteous God, who is perfectly just, will crown him with a crown of righteousness. I mean, that's grace. And he affirms that in salvation, God is still acting perfectly just. Perfectly righteous in salvation. Last verse here, Revelation 16, verse 5. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. Anybody know what these things are in Revelation 16? Who knows the book of Revelation? These are bold judgments. These are the final seven judgments of the tribulation. These are the worst of the judgments. Righteous are you, perfectly conforming to a moral standard, perfectly just, because you have judged these things. You are bringing judgment upon a wicked world. All right. Well, we're talking about theology, and in theology we make distinctions. So we're going to make some distinctions. And we've already kind of hinted at some of these distinctions, so some of this is going to be a little bit of a repeat, but I want you to recognize that there are some distinctions here. There are two distinctions. When we talk about God's righteousness, there are two distinctions we need to make. First, the absolute righteousness of God, and second, the relative righteousness of God. And these aren't as difficult as they sound. These are actually pretty easy. Absolute. It refers to God being righteous in and of himself. This is what we've already said. God is by nature righteous. He is absolutely righteous. Every one of his attributes is righteous. All of his attributes conform to his perfect moral standard. God is righteous in his mercy. God is righteous in his wrath. God is righteous in his holiness. All of his attributes are righteous. They all perfectly conform to his moral standard. Relative righteousness means that God demonstrates his righteousness to those who violate his law. God, you might say, proves his righteousness when he judges sinners. What do you think this one is called? What's another name for this when God demonstrates his righteousness to sinners? Holiness, okay. Justice, yeah. This is called justice. It's just a part of God's righteousness, but it's, we call it justice. It's God doing what is right, what the law demands he do with sinners. 
Um, his absolute righteousness you can see in Scripture. Exodus 9, Then Pharaoh said, sent for Moses and Aaron said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. He's not saying that there's one thing God has done that's righteous. He's not referring to one specific act. He's talking about the very nature of God himself. God is, by nature, righteous. This is his absolute righteousness. And he looks at himself and all the people in his country, and he says, we are the wicked ones. We are not righteous. We do not conform to God's perfect standard. But God always does. He always acts in accordance with his perfect nature. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all of his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness, righteous and upright is he. The term here, righteous and upright, righteous is our, from our Hebrew word group. Here it can be translated as just. And it's offset here, he says, without injustice. Just and upright is he. Justice gives to a person what they deserve. That is to say, justice gives to a person what the law demands. It always acts toward the sinner the way the law describes. Justice is always impartial. Remember, Lady Liberty had the blindfold on. It's always blind. It's always impartial. Injustice ignores the law. It violates the law to achieve some other end. Injustice gives to a sinner what they don't deserve. Injustice punishes the righteous and rewards the wicked. But, just like with righteousness, we need to make some distinctions here. Because if we're going to talk about the justice of God, we need to understand what we're actually referring to. Um, the first distinction here is called rectoral justice. Rectoral comes from a Latin word that just means straight. God, by nature, is righteous. We've said that already. But because God is righteous, God also expects that his creatures are also righteous. Because God, by nature, loves what is good, he hates what is evil, and he therefore wants you and I to be righteous. His rectoral justice refers to God providing a law and a standard by which we can determine whether or not we are righteous. He gives us the law so that we can know how to live righteously. And then inside that law, he includes rewards and penalties for righteousness. He rewards those who behave righteously and he punishes those who do not behave righteously. God is the one who sets the standard and gives the law. He determines what is and is not righteous behavior. You could say he is the, he is the lawgiver. Um, Isaiah. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is the king. He will save us. He is our judge. He's, going to determine, he's the one who determines whether or not we have behaved righteously. And he is the one who gives the law. Um, we have a Congress, right? Congress writes laws. 
Does Congress enforce the law? Does Congress decide whether or not you have obeyed the law? Does Congress decide how the law applies to you particularly in your situation? No, the courts do that, don't they? The courts determine whether or not you have obeyed the law, and the courts determine how those laws apply to you in particular. And the courts act as the judge to determine whether or not you're going to face a penalty. God is all three. He's the lawgiver, he's the court, and he's the executioner. All based on his standard. James 4 verse 12, there is one lawgiver and judge the one who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Don't try to take over God's job. He gave the law. He judges according to the law. God is righteous. And because he is righteous, his law is also righteous. His law always conforms to his perfect moral standard. Deuteronomy 4a, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today. Moses is giving his final few sermons in Deuteronomy, and he's talking to the children of Israel right before they go into the promised land, and he's reminding them, you guys have been given a perfect law, and there is no other nation in the world that has a law as perfect as this one. That's his rectoral justice. He sets a law, and inside that law, he gives penalties and rewards. And we'll see some of those in a minute. The second distinction is distributive justice. God gives rewards and punishments according to his righteous law. Rectoral justice, he sets them out and says, these are the rewards and punishments for obedience and disobedience. In distributive justice, he distributes those rewards and penalties according to his judgment. If you obey the law, you'll do well. If you break the law, your life is going to be rough. Isaiah 3, say to the righteous that it will go well with them. For they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with them. For what he deserves will be done to him. Justice is giving you what you deserve. And God tells Israel, look, you obey, I'll give you rewards. You disobey, I'm going to give you what you deserve. Peter understood the distributive justice of God. And he said the distributive justice of God should lead you to behave differently. 1 Peter 1. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Imagine for a moment, there is only one judge in the San Antonio area. He's really good at his job. And he handles all traffic violations. And because he's been doing this for a while, he's a little disgruntled and he gives no mercy to anyone at any time. And the fine for going too fast on the highway starts at 500 and works its way up. How eager are you to go in speed? There's one judge, and he judges impartially. Act accordingly. 
God's distributive justice gives to each one just as they deserve. To some, he gives rewards. And again, they make another distinction here. And they have a really fancy term for it. And rewards are in the scriptures are given to both men and to angels, to all creatures. They're given rewards, all rational creatures. Um, you can see this in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 is interesting. Again, they're about to go into the promised land. Then it shall come about, this is verse 12, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. Obedience was not the means for Israel to have a relationship with God. You might say it this way. Israel was not saved because they were obedient. Their relationship with God was determined by his sovereign decree when he chose Abraham and selected the nation of Israel out of all the others. We talked about that last week when we talked about holiness. The law was simply God telling them how to live in communion with a just and holy God. And in the law, he gives promises. If you would just be obedient, I'm going to do all of this for you. What are some of the things that he promised to the forefathers? Well, he tells them in the very next verse, verse 13. If you obey, he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and your young the young of your flock and the land which he swore to your forefathers to give to you. God's going to give you the land, and then he's going to make you prosper. Your farming is going to go well. Your agriculture is going to go well. Your livestock will be reproducing. You'll be wealthy. Things are going to go well for you. Reward, if you would just obey. If you would live according to God's standard. And he said, I'm going to bless you more than all the other nations. Very next verse, verse 14. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. If you would just live according to my standard. He even said, I'll remove your sickness. Verse 15. The Lord will remove from you all sickness. And he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. That would be pretty nice, wouldn't it? These are all promises of reward if they would obey, if they would live according to God's perfect standard, if they would be righteous as God is righteous. But we've already said that can they be righteous? Can they live according to God's perfect standard? Even here, we see God's grace. We see God's mercy. He's still giving rewards to people who do not deserve them. Louis Burkhoff explained it this way. It is really an expression of the divine love, dealing out his bounties, not on the basis of strict merit, for the creature can establish no absolute merit before the creator. You can't do anything to earn God's favor. God's rewards are gracious and spring from a covenant relation which he has established. God provided these rewards to Israel not because they perfectly attained righteousness, but because he had already made promises to them and God was righteously living out those promises and adhering to the promises that he had made. Jesus spoke of this. Luke 17 
So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. His rewards are just an act of his grace. God gives rewards. This is called his rectoral, I'm sorry, distributive justice. He gives rewards to the righteous or those he accounts as righteous. And to the unrighteous, he gives punishment. It's known as retributive justice. Giving you punishment for not obeying. God is not required to give rewards. We've already said that's grace. Is God required to give punishment? Step away from Christ for a moment. Yes, God has to give punishment, doesn't he? And even when we talk about being in Christ, punishment was still given, wasn't it? Divine justice, divine righteousness requires that God give to the sinner what the sinner deserves. Sin demands a penalty. Sin demands a punishment because God is righteous. Romans 2.9 there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. God's retributive justice is an expression of his wrath. Romans 12.10, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Someone treats you unjustly, someone does something horrible to you, you can trust in the righteousness of God. God will give to each person according to what they are due. And it may not be in this lifetime, and you may never see it. But that act will be dealt with. Justice will be served. 2 Thessalonians 1. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He deals out punishment to those who refuse to live according to his standard. And of course, there are people who object. And they say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. God is so loving and so kind and so merciful, he doesn't punish people. He's not punishing them. God doesn't want to just bring punishment on people. God has a higher motivation here. God isn't trying to punish the sinner. He's trying to reform the sinner. He's trying to make the sinner better. Now, first of all, we do affirm that God disciplines his own for the purpose of reformation. If you're a believer, God is disciplining you at some level. He's sanctifying you. But this discipline is never referred to as being a punishment in the sense of God giving you justice. God giving you what you deserve. Uh, Charles Hodge had this little quote. He said, punishment is evil inflicted in satisfaction of justice. Now, what I don't like about that little statement is it's very broad and it could be misunderstood. What I do like about it is that it puts punishment in a, in a different category from discipline. Um, when he refers to evil here, when you talk about evil, there's different kinds of evil. There's moral evil, so killing, murder would be a moral evil. Uh, there's natural evil. A tornado would be a natural evil. It causes severe harm and devastation to people. 
that's kind of what he's referring to here. Punishment brings suffering. The tornado is considered evil, a natural evil, because it brings suffering and destruction. Punishment brings suffering. It brings pain. How do we respond to this idea that God doesn't punish the sinner? There's a couple of ways we can respond to this. First, Scripture relates God's discipline of believers to his love for them. When God describes his discipline for a believer, it's not his justice being acted, it's his love for the sinner, his care for that individual. But anytime scriptures talk about God punishing a sinner or bringing justice upon a sinner, it's not related to his love, but to his anger and his wrath. Believers are never said to experience God's anger and wrath. Secondly, the punishment itself often excludes the idea of reformation. Just think back into the Old Testament, in, in Genesis, the flood. All the people who perished in the flood, how was that to reform them? There's no way it could reform them. They all died. Reforming them wasn't the goal. The goal there was punishment. Or the fallen angels. Fallen angels cannot repent. They cannot turn. They're now considered demons. There's no repentance for them. There's no hope of reformation. And the punishment isn't intended to bring a change. It's intended to bring about justice. And again, we're talking about people who are not believers. Third, his punishments are not described as bringing about reformation. When God punishes sinners in the Bible, you don't see them bringing about reformation. I'm going to give you an example. Often his punishments are intended to harden the sinner. To push them further into sin so that God can bring more wrath and more penalty. Think of Pharaoh of Egypt. Before he sent Moses back, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Why do you do that? So he can bring all ten plagues. Or think of Romans 1, God turned them over. That's a judicial statement. It's the idea of a judge handing a person over to the executioner. This is not intended for reformation. This is not intended to change the person. His punishments often result in the sinner just continuing in their sin. I'm going to give you an example, Revelation 16. We, we talked briefly about Revelation 16 before. Revelation 16 talks about the bold judgments. These are the worst of the judgments in the tribulation. Revelation 16, verses 5 and 6. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you, who are and who were a holy one, because you judge these things. For they have poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. These people killed your saints, and now you are giving them what they deserve. And if the objection were true that God punishes merely so he can reform people, merely so the sinner will change, if that objection is true, then this judgment should bring about some holiness. Let's find out if it does. Revelation 16, verses 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to each 
to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Not only did they not repent, but they turned around and began to curse God. And notice he says, they blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues. The one person who could stop the plagues, the one person that could give them relief, instead of turning to him and saying, we're sorry, we repent, they turned to him and continued to curse him. No repentance, no reformation, Revelation 16.10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Did they repent? And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. The goal here is not reformation. The goal here is giving them what they deserve. It's divine justice. It's dealt out for the purpose of punishment. God is righteous. He always does what is right. And it's only right that he treat people according to what they deserve. And therefore, he must punish sin. He can't reward sin. Sin doesn't deserve a reward. It would be unrighteous to reward it. Sin deserves punishment. And so God does exactly that. He punishes sin because it's the right thing to do, not because it's going to reform them. It's an act of his justice. If God didn't punish sin, what would that say about God? I hear, I hear people. I can't hear you, though. He's not just. He's not God. He's not righteous. You could imply that God is approving of the sin. You have kids at home. If your kid goes and does something wrong and you don't deal with it, you don't correct it and, and stop it, are they going to do it again? More than likely. Because they assume, well, mom and dad saw me do this. They didn't stop me. They must be okay with it. You and I deserve punishment. Romans 3, we looked at this before. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God didn't give us what we deserve, did he? Thank goodness. He could have killed us the first time we sinned. We could all be in hell right now. But he didn't. Was this injustice? God refusing to give us what we deserve? No, this was mercy. His justice was satisfied in Christ. Romans 3 whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's justice is demonstrated in salvation because God looked over sins previously committed until they could be dealt with by Christ. And those sins were paid for. His justice was satisfied. It is an act of his righteousness. Wayne Grudem said it this way, When Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins, it showed that God was truly righteous because he did give appropriate punishment to sin. 
even though he did forgive his people of their sins. The fact that your sin and my sin, it took the Son of God dying on a cross and suffering the wrath of God doesn't explain how good you are and how valuable you are. It explains how devastating your sin is. Because it costs so incredibly much. That's God's justice and his righteousness. We have like 13 minutes. Okay. Let's talk about God's wrath. We're stopping at 10 no matter what. We should be able to make it. God's wrath is not technically a distinct attribute by itself. Um, most systematic theologies put the wrath of God under his righteousness. So if you go home and pull out a systematic theology and you're looking for wrath and you don't see it in the table of contents, go to the section where it talks about his righteousness and you'll probably find it there. And they put it there because wrath is a consequence of God's holiness and his justice. God's wrath is a consequence of the fact that he is holy and that he always does what is right. He is wrathful because he is holy and just. Let's put it another way. God loves all that is good and all that is holy. Therefore, God hates what is sinful and unholy. He has to hate it. If you love babies, you must necessarily hate abortion. You can't love both. They are contradictory. You can't say God loves holiness and goodness and then turn around and say God is cool with your sin. God hates your sin. Wayne Grudem, God's wrath means that he, is, that he intensely hates all sin. And this is, the wrath of God is described in some very graphic terms. The actual term wrath here is used of God and it's used of people. But the root word means to burn. Wayne Groom says it's intense. It's like burning. Herman Baving said, in part, it expresses a vehement, uncontrollable emotion. is often compared to a burning. Now, to be sure... We'll talk about the emotion part here in a minute. We're talking about wrath and people there, not wrath and God. But the idea here is a burning, and it's actually described as burning in several places. It's described as being a fire. It's described as being hot and smoking. These are all terms that used to describe in Scripture the idea of wrath. But wrath is not the same as rage. If I told you that person experienced my wrath, what do you guys think of? What kind of behavior would that describe? Violence. I'm hearing people, I'm just not understanding what you're saying. Revenge. Yelling, screaming, out of control, anger, right? That's what we have this idea of wrath. But that's not what we're talking about with God. There's a doctrine we haven't been able to talk about called impassibility. Impassibility says that God does experience emotions, although he doesn't experience them the way we do, and that God's emotions are never out of control and that he is never led by his emotions. Have you ever been led by your emotions? Yeah, that never happens with God. He is never led by emotions. His wrath is not out of control anger. It's not God having 
a temper tantrum. Nor is his wrath indiscriminate. You look on the news lately, there have been a whole bunch of shootings. People just going and just giving indiscriminate violence. That's not the wrath of God. God is not abusive. He doesn't punish the righteous. He doesn't pour out his wrath on people who are undeserving. God's wrath is a holy, just, righteous, and infinite abhorrence of sin. It's holy. It has no connection to sin whatsoever. It's not like our rage that's filled with sin. It's just. It's always poured out on people who deserve it. And it's never poured out on those who do not deserve it. And it's infinite. An infinite abhorrence. There's not even a little tiny speck of God that doesn't hate sin. God's wrath is described as being terrible, inspiring dread, bringing pain. It's described as a punishment. It's described as destruction. Exodus 32, Moses said, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn my wrath against them, that I may destroy them. (laughs) The goal is not reformation here, is it? Deuteronomy 28, verse 23. All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unknown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was a demonstration of God's wrath, his intense hatred for sin. Now there are some who say, well, that's the Old Testament. That's a different God. That God was wrathful. New Testament God, no wrath. Mm, Except Jesus said, he who believes in the Son of God has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. God's intense hatred for sin rests and sticks with that person because they're in sin. His wrath is revealed against all ungodliness. We don't have time. Romans 1, verse 18. And those who persistently, continually live in sin and in ungodliness are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Romans 2, 5, but because of the stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath to be poured out later. I had someone tell me, well, if God doesn't like my sin, why does he allow me to be happy right now? And my answer to that was, because he's going to get you in the next life. You're not getting away with anything. 1 Thessalonians 1 says, Christians do not experience God's wrath. Verse 10, and to wait for the Son from heaven from whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. As a Christian, you will never experience the wrath of God. If you are in Christ, the wrath of God is not for you. Christ came to save you from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He could have poured out his wrath. He could have demonstrated how much he hates sin. But he chose not to. 
2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's where the Reformation is supposed to occur. In the patience and the long-suffering of God, waiting for the sinner to come to repentance as he holds back his wrath. Jealousy. I told you we're going to make it. Jealousy. Now, what do you think of when you say, when you hear the term jealous? Is it something positive? Usually something negative, right? Or something sinful? And when we're discussing jealousy in in a sinful way, jealousy is more than merely greed. Greed is coveting, desiring something that's not yours. Jealousy is more than just coveting. Jealousy is the anger that results from coveting something you don't have, but then seeing someone else get what you want. I really want to win the lottery. That's coveting. Mike Dunn just won the lottery. No, actually he didn't, but... Mike Dunn just won the lottery, and now I'm angry at Mike because he got what I want. That's jealousy. When we talk about jealousy in God, we're not talking about God being angry because someone else got what he wants. Wayne Grunham, God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. He zealously protects what is his. And he is not willing to allow anyone to take or to damage what is his. Uh, Biblical doctrine said God's jealousy is his zealous protectiveness of all that belongs to him. That includes himself, his name, his glory, his people, his sole right to receive worship and ultimate obedience, his land and his city. He protects all that belongs to him. If you want to see this idea, you can see it in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I care about you. I love you. I want to protect you. I consider you my children. When we say that God is jealous, what we mean is that God is seeking to protect his own honor, his own name. Exodus 34, 14. You shall, not set, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. God is jealous for his own worship. He protects his right to be worshipped and to be served in him alone, and those who refuse to worship him and him alone, he's coming for. That's his jealousy. He protects his own name, Exodus 34, 14. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Psalm 78. They provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with graven images. He's protective of the worship that he deserves. And he was filled with wrath wrath, and greatly abhorred Israel. And even those that are his, he can still become jealous if they turn away. Exodus 16, 
They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more. God disciplines out of jealousy. He chastens out of, out of jealousy. And why does he do this? Isaiah 48, for my own sake. And he says again, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. All that God does in his jealousy, he does to protect his own name. To exalt his own name. To bring honor and praise to himself. Now, if we said this about any person in the world, everything that person does is to exalt their own name, to glorify themselves, to bring praise to themselves, what would we think about that person? Pride, narcissist, nothing good, right? Why is it wrong for a person to do that? We're the creature? What else? I heard someone else. We're sinners. We don't deserve that kind of praise. We don't deserve anything close to that kind of praise. But God isn't a sinner. God is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly holy. He is worthy of that kind of praise. He deserves it. He deserves for every word that comes out of your mouth to be glorifying to Him. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. God is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your praise. And he will zealously defend his name, his honor, and the worship that he is deserving of. And he will be perfectly righteous and just when he does it. And those who don't give him what he deserves will face his wrath. All right? Any questions? I told you we were going to make it. It's 10 o'clock. By the skin of my teeth. And my teeth don't have skin. Okay. All right. Let's, let's pray. Father, it is good news to us that you are righteous, that you are just, that you always do what is right. What a terrifying thought that there would be an omnipotent God who is unjust, who is not righteous, who doesn't act according to a perfect standard. We are so thankful for Christ because in, in Christ, your righteousness was demonstrated. You took the penalty that we rightly owed and you put it on him and he paid that penalty for us so that we would not have to suffer your wrath. And now we can give you the worship that you are deserving. We can honor you and praise you as you deserve, even though we don't do that perfectly. But we do ask this morning that you would help us to worship, you would help us to praise you, and that you would find our worship and our praise pleasing and acceptable to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.